0: It's cool to be able to preach on Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to you fathers in the room. Why did the kids give a blanket to their dad for Father's Day? Because they thought he was the coolest. Oh, I love dad jokes. As many of you guys know, I I cannot resist dad jokes. What do you call a man who's not a dad who tells dad jokes? A faux pas. <laughs> I can't help myself; it's so good. Okay, all joking aside, happy Father's Day. I truly do hope that you feel loved and encouraged uh, by your family today. Well, let's pray. Lord, we we thank you and we praise you uh, that we can be together today as your people, and we can hear from you and your Word. And we pray for the work of your Spirit now, Lord. Would you open our hearts and minds to receive the truth, Lord? We pray that. your word and your spirit would bring encouragement to us today as your people. We pray for that in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right. How many of you are familiar with uh, the show Jeopardy? Raise your hand. Jeopardy. Okay. Jeopardy is basically a game show for really smart people who know all kinds of information. I try not to watch that show because it makes me feel really dumb. This week on Jeopardy!, there was a question that stumped all three contestants. They didn't even venture a guess. That's how hard this question was. Now, I'm going to put the clue on the board for you. On the board, it's a, it's a projector. I feel like I'm the host. Just call me Alex from now on. Um, if you know the answer, just raise your hand, okay? So here's the clue from... From the show. Matthew six nine says, Our Father in heaven, our Father which art in heaven, this be your name. You know the know the answer? Raise your hand. All right, what's the answer? Hallowed, hallowed. yes, hallowed be thy name. It's the first line of the Lord's prayer, and not a single contestant knew it, didn't even venture a guess. It's just another small proof of the biblical illiteracy and decline of the Christian faith in America. And to me, it's ironic. It's ironic because hallowed be thy name is a prayer for God's name to be honored as holy. That's what it means. And our culture is pretty much sprinting in the opposite direction. We see... uh, our culture disintegrating into greater and greater immorality. And it's because we don't honor God as holy. We have abortion on demand. We have the insanity of transgenderism. We have homosexual marriage. We've got indoctrination in our schools. We have greed and corruption all around us. We we have life and marriage and family and faith, which are all under attack in our culture. So... How do we, as as Christians, maintain the faith now and into the future? How do we build a strong Christian community of faith that's going to stand the tempest of our culture? How do we make disciples that are going to remain steadfast in the face of temptation to compromise? Our text is going to help us answer these questions today, and I hope that you'll all be encouraged because these practices are not difficult. So turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 31. The question that we hope to answer today is this, how do we maintain faithfulness as God's people now and into the future? How do Christians succeed in this culture? Now, this sermon had a theme verse it would be 2 Timothy 1.14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit that is entrusted to you. We're going to see four essential practices to maintain faith and faithfulness this morning. As we come to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, we come to the end of Moses' life and ministry leading Israel, and the focus shifts now to guarding the faithfulness of God's people in the future. So the first practice, be strong and courageous for God is with you. We see this in verses one through eight. The Israelites are facing the conquest in the promised land and there are giants in the land. Remember when the spies went in, they saw the giants and made them feel like grasshoppers. They were freaked out. Not only that, there's the, the challenge, the danger of foreign gods. And on top of all of the challenges of conquest, Moses, the one who has led them for so long, will not be with them. Verse 2, Moses says, I'm 120 years old today. I'm no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. So Moses seeks to encourage them, to give them courage. How? His main encouragement is that the Lord their God will be with them. He says it three times. Verse 3, the Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you. God's going to defeat their enemies and give them victory as he had spoken, verses 4 and 5. So Moses tells the people in verse 6, he's speaking to the people, he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And then Moses also tells Joshua who's gonna lead them in verses seven and eight. Be strong and courageous. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Three times, God is with you. God is with you. God is with you. So be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Their survival and their success as God's people depend on God's leadership, God's strength, God's provision, God's protection. And like them, you can face present and future challenges with boldness and courage because God is with you. The strength and courage that you need to be found faithful is found in trusting this promise. Now, this promise is only for God's people. It's, it's for those who belong to the Lord. It's for those who have repented of their sins, put their faith in Jesus Christ, and become one of his people. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. Now, the true leader of God's people has always been God, and that remains true even in Moses' absence. Yet, yet, God delegates authority to under shepherds. So as a second encouragement to them, Moses tells them, Joshua will go over at your head, verse 3. Now, as all leaders do, Joshua feels the weight of leadership responsibility. Men, you feel it. You feel the weight of provision, providing for your family. You feel the weight of protecting your family. Am I right? You feel that weight just like Joshua. And like the people, Joshua need not fear because God will be with him to empower him for the task that God has given him. Verses seven and eight. That's true of every one of us in this room. God always provides the guidance and strength and courage and wisdom that you need to do what he asks. God doesn't call his people or his leaders to do something and then leave them to themselves. No, God always goes with us. And that assurance enables us to meet every challenge that we might face. God will be with you to help you in all things, at all times, with all that you need. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. So be strong and courageous, for God is with you. This is an encouragement that countless Christians through the centuries have needed and trusted. And we need it today. I don't have to tell you about the challenges that we're uh, facing today. The challenges that are confronting us are very real. They're very difficult challenges to our faith, to our lives and our family. As Western uh, society continues this rapid decline into idolatry and unbelief, we see it in every sphere all around us. We see it in education and in the marketplace and in government. It's on full display this month as the pride flag is is waved in triumph over almost every single institution across our land. If we're going to persevere as faithful Christians in this culture, we need strength and courage. Amen? Other challenges, though, that we face, they're more immediate. They're more personal. We need strength and courage in the trials of this life. We face trials. We face the weight of financial struggles and poor health, and fractured families, and an uncertain future. We feel the weight of our sin. We feel the, the slowness to obey God, our lack of progress in holiness. We need strength and courage when God calls us to a challenging obedience as well. What's a challenging obedience? A challenging obedience is when God calls us to do something hard that goes against our natural inclination, Like the call to practice hospitality to strangers, to invite non-believers into your home to minister the gospel to them. Like the call, the mission that we've been given to go and make disciples, evangelism, the dreaded word. It strikes fear in the hearts of God's people. But we're called to share the gospel with our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and our families. And let's be honest, it scares us doesn't it? Or the challenging obedience of standing for truth in the public square, not going along with the lies of our culture regarding gender, the challenging of obedience of standing outside an abortion mill to plead for life and proclaim the gospel, the challenging obedience of loving and praying for your enemies, the challenging obedience of forgiving those who have sinned against you, who have wounded you, and on and on it goes obedience to God's commands. They require acting in faith with courage. Now there's plenty in this life to cause us to fear. You know, but God tells us to be strong and courageous, for I am with you. God is a bulwark never failing. Now how do we make use of this truth that God is with us? We trust God, we act in faith, and through it all, we pray. Prayer is how we lean on God. So Paul says, and we miss this as Christians when we quote this verse, don't miss the first part of this. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Don't start with, do not be anxious about anything. You got to start with the Lord is at hand. He's with you. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. In the Bible, we often see people who are wavering between courage and fear. And so Moses himself, when he's first called by God, he says to God, he's like, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God says to him, but I will be with you. God says to Isaiah, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. And Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, says to us, his people, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God not only goes with us in the present, verse six, he goes before us into the future, verse three, verse eight. He, God, knows, God knows that our obedience to him is going to stretch us. It's going to require us to trust in this promise. It's natural for us to be afraid when we face trials, when we face a challenging obedience. God calls us to be strong and courageous in these situations, not in ourselves, but by looking to him and depending on him. God doesn't appeal to Joshua's leadership abilities. He doesn't appeal to the, the strength and wisdom of the people. Instead, God promises, I will be with you. And this is what ultimately matters, not their ability, God's. To stay faithful as God's people in this culture, we gotta lean into this glorious truth that the one who calls you and equips you and sends you out is the same God who promises, I go with you. Be strong and courageous because I'm with you. The second practice for us is to be a disciple and to make disciple, make disciples of your children. We see this in verses nine through 13. Moses wrote the law to preserve it for future generations. And then he gives it to the priests and Levites and elders of Israel for safekeeping. They're supposed to read it regularly. I mean, we've spent a lot of time talking about God's word, but what good is a sufficient understandable word if it's lost or forgotten or unknown. It's like having a Bible, but just keeping it on the shelf all the time. It's no good. Verse 10, Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years at the set time in the year of release at the feast of booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord, your God, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing this is a special time of significance for them as a people. The year of release is when debts were canceled, slaves were set free. The feast of booths was a celebration of them being rescued from Egypt and God's provision for them in the wilderness. But it was also the feast of ingathering. It was the celebration of the harvest. So right now that means that the, the word of God is going to be read in full at a time where they're remembering God's gracious salvation and his faithful provision for them as a people. Why is that important? It's important because Moses is going to call them to be careful to do everything that they read in the law. But that's first founded on the fact that God has already saved them and made him his own. You see, we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then our obedience, our faithfulness to him flows from that. We see the same pattern here. Moses says, assemble the people men, women, and children, wait, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you're going over to possess. Now, the clear focus here is on training each new generation to fear the Lord and to walk in his ways. And obviously, this is not the only time that they're going to read and hear the law. The ongoing ministry of the priests and the prophets and the sacrificial system, the, the regular observance of Sabbath feasts where they had uh, gatherings together would ensure the regular hearing of God's word. On top of which, we already saw that parents are commanded to teach it diligently to their children, Deuteronomy 6, 7. Man, we, are, we are so blessed we are so blessed to have God's word fully written and at our fingertips. And one of the most dangerous challenges of the faith is the temptation to neglect God's word. To give it a minor role in your life, rather than letting it have the lead and directing all of your thoughts and your actions as it's meant to. If we're going to be faithful and fruitful Christians, young and old, then we have to read, study, meditate, and live God's word. Now, parents, you have the primary, not the soul, but the primary responsibility for training your children to follow Jesus. Of course, it's a joint mission that moms and dads share, but fathers, you have a unique role in this as the leader of your family. So Ephesians 6, 4 says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So on this Father's Day, let me encourage you to fulfill your responsibility to lead your family spiritually, to be both provider and protector, not just physically, but to see to it that you are giving your family spiritual provision and protection Now, maybe you feel discouraged or apprehensive about this. I don't know. Maybe it's because you haven't been doing it. Maybe it's because of past failures. Maybe the thought of doing it is overwhelming to you. If you're feeling discouraged or dismayed, let me point you back to the encouragement from point number one. God is with you. The God who called you to this ministry at home, leading your family, is the one who equips you and goes with you. So take the next step of faith in leading your family spiritually. I don't know what the next step is, but I want to say don't grow comfortable with where you're at. Press into this, take that next step of faith, and trust that God is going with you. Now, this is also one of the many places in Scripture that we see the pattern of age integration in God's Gathering for corporate worship, whole families, including kids, are commanded to listen to the reading of the law, verses twelve and thirteen. Children are also are present in the the feasts. We saw that in Deuteronomy sixteen, including all the weekly Sabbath feasts. Those were feasts where they met for corporate worship. Leviticus twenty three and one through three. Children were present for Jesus' preaching, Matthew 14. They were present in the early church meetings where they were specifically addressed, Acts twenty seven through 12, Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. It's these scriptures that lead us to keep all ages together in church so that kids learn to love and serve and worship the Lord. Ah, But Michael, kids are so distracting. Maybe, but that doesn't mean that we can ignore the scriptures for how God wants worship to be done. We gotta give kids grace and patiently teach them how to reverence and worship God. This is part of our commitment for training our kids. Yeah, it's hard work. This is sanctifying for us as parents and for them as kids, amen? But Michael, little kids don't get much out of it. Respectfully, I disagree with that you would be surprised. They're learning how to worship God by watching their parents and others worship and take communion. The Holy Spirit is working on their their hearts as they sit and sing and read the Bible. Even as the little ones draw and color and wiggle around, kids learn each week, you belong here. They learn by participation and by example and by repetition. There is a cumulative effect over time. They learn by what they see, not just by what they hear. And you would be surprised what they learn from the sermons. We need to give kids more credit. So dads, I want to say, well done for leading your family to church and for making that a top priority. If we want the faith to continue, then we have an obligation to pass it on to future generations. How do we do that? Three crucial pieces. Church, bringing them to the gathering of God's people for worship. Second, family devotions, gathering regularly in your home to read the Bible, to sing, to pray, to teach them the faith. Dads, this is your responsibility to lead, to make sure that this happens in your home. And third, a life of faith. This is the example that you give, the teachable moments that you take advantage of, and your service. All of this is bathed in prayer. But ask your ask and answer these questions. Parents, are your kids seeing you strive to live out your faith? Not perfectly, but growing. Are you bringing the Bible to bear daily in their lives as you instruct them, as you teach them? Are you giving them a heart for missions near and far so that they go tell it on the mountains, over the hills, and everywhere? Part of our job in training our kids is to train our kids that serving Christ, that living out our faith in the world is both expected and normal for Christians. In the end, discipleship of our kids is both show and tell, teaching the word and living the word. To guard the faith, we must be a disciple and make disciples of our children. We do that as parents with the help of the church. Third practice, sing together to strengthen and protect your faith. We see this in verses 14 through 22. So the, the Lord calls Moses and Joshua into the tent of meeting, verse 14, because God is going to commission Joshua. When they go in the tent, the pillar of cloud comes down, verse 15. But before we get to the commissioning, which is way down in verse 23, we see a problem. Israel's apostasy, verse 16. God tells Moses that after he dies, the people are going to rise and whore after the foreign gods around them and forsake me and break my covenant. As a result, God's anger is going to be kindled. He will hide his face from them and they will be devoured and many evils and troubles will come upon them, verse 17a. And we see their response. They will say, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us, 17b. Now that's technically true, but that's the wrong attitude. That's leaving out something very important. It's not the full picture. It leaves out the fact that their rebellion and rejected prompted God's actions. Verse 18. What was the cause of this? Abundance. Verse 20. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, and they've eaten and are full and grown fat, it will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. They grew fat and satisfied and complacent, leading them away from God. That's our danger in America as well. Ease, abundance, plenty. These are enemies of our faith, they choke the faith. This is the seed among thorns. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful, choked by the cares and the riches and pleasures of life. Do you ever stop and wonder why Paul has to learn the secret of being content in plenty? Because plenty is a danger. And What's the solution? What's God's plan to combat idolatry and help them maintain faithfulness? God does something surprising and really cool. The solution is a song. God gives Moses a song. Verse 19, now therefore write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. Verse 21, and when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring, their children. For I know what they're inclined to do even today before I brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. This is so cool. God knows our hearts are prone to wander. So he has Moses teach them a song that will serve as a a witness to confront them with the truth. The scripture shows us the power of songs to teach and disciple. Whenever they sang it, they would be testifying to their duty to God and the dangers of disobedience. It was a warning that was meant to encourage their faithfulness and their continued trust in their great God. We also see here the power of song for long-term memory and sustained impact because this song was going to live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring from one generation to the next. Man, music has a a unique ability to lodge a message in our memory, doesn't it? And maybe you notice some of the song lyrics that were mentioned in earlier points of the sermon. That was intentional. Lyrics are ingrained into our memory; they immediately call to mind the truths of that song. Alzheimer's patients—they can often remember songs that they learned long ago. It's why song is part of the the therapy for those patients. You see, the songs that we sing. Shape our faith and the faith of the next generation. They cement the truth. Now we're going to leave the content of, of the song of Moses for next week, but we got to see here the importance of song for guarding the faith, the importance of song for teaching and training and instilling the truth. God says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And one of the ways that we do that is singing Colossians 3:16. God says address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, five, Ephesians 5.19. And we want to sing all three at GFC. God calls us to sing and make music to the Lord with all our heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God in the name of Jesus, Ephesians 5.20. This is how we, be- we begin to see now how, how song can combat idolatry and abundance because when we sing, we're supposed to sing with all of our hearts to God and as we sing, we're to give thanks to God for everything that he has given to us, for all of his provision. Worship is to be Christ-centered and God-glorifying. It's supposed to fix our heart's affection and our mind's attention on him. So what's the purpose of song then? Yes, it is to praise and glorify and worship God, but it's more than that. That's not everything. Song is also for building one another up, encouragement to persevere, protection from the deceitfulness of riches, comfort in sorrow, unity as a body, and so much more. Notice that in song, we are addressing one another. We're not just talking to God. We're talking to each other. We're we're reminding ourselves and each other of the truth. And this this shows us the need to choose theologically rich and accurate songs, all of this. We want songs that are not just catchy, but correct. Because the words matter, because songs are always teaching. In their book, Sing, Keith and Kristen Getty put it this way. How we sing, what we sing, What we keep and what we leave out are shaping the faith we hand on to the next generation and the musical heritage they will have. May it not be on our watch that good congregational singing is lost or that we do not carefully watch over what we sing. Singing sustains and strengthens our faith as God's people. How many of you have songs that you love? Raise your hand. How many of you have songs that have anchored you in the truth? Songs that have ministered to your heart in different seasons of life? We all do. No wonder God commands us over 50 times in the Bible to sing. It's powerful for shaping and guarding the faith. God's people are a singing people. God's given us an entire book of songs called the Psalms. They give us a clear vision of God. They teach us what to sing about, how to trust God and live the faith in every season of life. And just like learning the Bible, learning good songs and developing a heart for singing takes effort and it begins at home. It starts in your singing together in family worship. If you're not singing together at home in your family worship, please, please let me encourage you, start singing together at home in your family worship. It's why we put a song in our, our, for family worship in our weekly email every week. I want you to sing at home. You could learn a hymn a month as a family. We're going to have worship nights at our house again this summer, so you can come and learn new songs to sing with your family. We use songs to teach children the truth of the faith. So let me encourage you, be a parent who sings joyfully at home, And at church, model it for your kids. Teach your your kids songs that you want them to remember when they grow old. Sing together to strengthen and protect your faith. Fourth and finally, participate in the community of faith and submit to its leaders. We see this in verses 23 through 29, but also in verses nine through 13. And I'm gonna, we've already talked about participating in, in worship, so I'm gonna focus in on this submission to leaders God commissions Joshua to lead the people. But he's not alone. The priests and the Levites as well as the elders also have responsibilities to help maintain the faith of God's people. The leaders are specifically addressed by Moses, verse 24. When Moses finished writing the book, writing the law in a book, he commanded the Levites to take this book of the law and put it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord, verse 25 and 26, because verse 27 I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Then he assembles all the elders of the people, verse 28, and he calls heaven and earth as a witness against them because they too will act corruptly and turn aside from God's way. The implication here is that God's leaders must lead faithfully and they must first lead themselves so that they don't lead others astray. We've all... Seen the devastation when a Christian leader goes astray, when a pastor embezzles money, or when a pastor gets caught in a moral failure. That not only reflects poorly on Christ and damages the credibility of the church, but it also undermines all pastors across the board. Paul's counsel to, pastor, to pastors is crucial. Paul tells pastors, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the holy spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of god acts 20:28 20, again keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching persist in this for by so doing you will save yourself and your hearers 1 timothy 4:16 for those who lead others like pastors but hear me now this includes fathers husbands the first soul that you must watch over is your own. Yet, God gives leaders to his people for their benefit. God doesn't say, oh, the the leaders are going to fail, so I'm just not going to give them any leaders. No, he still gives them the leaders. He wants them to lead faithfully. Leaders are a benefit for his people. The priests and the elders are responsible for gathering the people, for regularly reading the scriptures so that the people learn to fear the Lord. They're sternly warned here as an encouragement to stay faithful. So Joshua and these leaders, they're supposed to shepherd the flock of God. That's the dominant metaphor in the Bible for leaders. As fathers, you're the shepherd of your family. According to Ezekiel, shepherd leaders, like pastors and fathers, were to be servant leaders who put others' needs first, who strengthen the weak and bind up the injured and bring back the strayed and lead with gentleness, not harshness, so that the sheep are not scattered. Ezekiel 34, 4 and 5. Shepherds defend the sheep with their life. John 10, 11 through 14. They lead, feed, care, and protect the sheep, Psalm 23. They follow the pattern of Jesus, the chief shepherd. Now, there are two implications of this. First is for shepherds. Keep a close watch on yourself so that you lead faithfully the way that God calls you to lead. And second is for the sheep. Submit yourself to godly leaders. God has given them to you for the care of your souls, Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. See, one of the ways that God intends to guard the faith is through godly authority, godly leaders who watch over the sheep that God has entrusted to their care. So church, submit to your leaders and children, submit to your fathers for their keeping watch over your souls. And remember, there are no perfect leaders. There are godly ones, but no perfect ones. All pastors, all fathers are imperfect. Our most important job as leaders is leading the way in following Jesus. I love what Paul tells Timothy. Paul tells Timothy to set an example in speech conduct love faith and purity he tells him to read the word and teach the word faithfully and then at the end of that i love what he says he says devote yourself to these things so that all may see your progress i love that because progress means he hasn't arrived progress means he's not perfect No one's going to be perfect. We lead, right? We we make progress in the faith as leaders, and that's the aim of our leadership. Paul says the aim of his ministry is this, for your progress and joy in the faith. That's our aim as shepherds. So dads, lead as a servant. Set the example for your family and let them see your progress in the faith. When you mess up, own it. Repent. Don't be that guy who never says, I'm sorry. I totally messed up. Will you forgive me? Own it. Let them see your progress in the faith. There's no need to pretend to be perfect. You will not strengthen your leadership by pretending to be perfect. You will strengthen your leadership by by showing those you lead what to do when they make mistakes. So lean into the promise of God's presence. Be strong and courageous because God is with you. The whole focus of this passage is on guarding the faithfulness of God's people as they head into the future. And we need this today Be strong and courageous. Be a people who live the word, people who disciple their kids, who sing, who gather for worship at home and at church, who submit to godly authority. These are the means of grace given by God to strengthen and encourage and protect the faith now and into the future. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you and praise you for your instruction in your word. God, we... Go back to where we began, and we pray that by the Spirit who dwells in us, you would help us to guard the good deposit entrusted to us. That by the Spirit who dwells in us, you would help us to be faithful and to pass on the faith to the next generation. God, this is beyond us, but it's not beyond you. Help us to lean into this promise to be strong and courageous, because you, you are with us. In Jesus' name, amen.